This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody. Mike here, and you're listening to the Conquering Columbus podcast. If it's your first time listening on this show, we interview people that are conquering their fields from around Columbus so we can bring out the stories of everybody that's helping to make our city great. And on this episode, I got the chance to talk with Hugh Cathy, currently the CEO of ChromoCare, as well as principal of Columbus Partners LLC. Hugh had a really successful career as a CEO, leading multiple startups in the telecom space and others before becoming an investor himself. And early on in the episode, we talk about one of those highlights when Hugh led a telecom investment as a CEO and took a billion dollar investment and turned it into over $900 million in annual revenue before leading an IPO. We started building the company. It really took off. And within two years, we launched a Goldman Sachs underwritten IPO, raised about 700 million in equity, 400 million in public debt. Then the investor was able to start taking out some of his money. We grew the company and from 96 to late 99, we hit a 900 million annualized revenue run rate. So almost a billion a year in revenue. And that's recurring revenue because people sign up for the services and it recurs every month. Later, we talk about what ChromoCare does and what the field of pharmacogenetics does for people. The question I always ask when I'm speaking in front of a group is how many of you in the audience has been given a prescription for a medication and it either didn't work or it caused some sort of a side effect? And usually about 75 or 80% of the people raise their hands. And the reason that happens is because based on their genetic variants, those things can now be told by analyzing the genetic code. And so a patient comes to us and we can produce a report from that that says that Mike, uh, if he takes clopidogrel for, for a depression situation, he will also have a real problem sleeping. And so guess what happens? The doctor prescribes Ambien to combat that instead of changing the primary drug. So what we are all about is making sure that the first drug that's being prescribed in a medical case is the right drug so that we don't have to switch them back and forth all the time. We wrap up the show talking about a challenge Hugh has seen in young entrepreneurs and first-time entrepreneurs. They stop betting on themselves. Part of the problem with this early liquidity event psychology that, that permeates, particularly the technology world, and people get excited. You see young entrepreneurs you know, excited about the potential for an exit. And yeah, that's cool. But what about taking that widget and reinvesting and making it times three, times five, times 10 in terms of capability? That's exciting stuff. I had a great time talking with Hugh and learned a ton. So as always, we hope you do as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here. And I'm flying solo today. Josh is out and about. I believe he's down in Cincinnati working on uh, something for his side business. Well, it's actually probably his main business at this point. So, you know, he's uh, he's out and about. So you're stuck with just me, uh, which means that we're going to have some fun. And I'm excited to be talking with uh, our guest today. Joining us is uh, Hugh Cathy. So Hugh is uh, the CEO of ChromoCare. And ChromoCare is a leader in the field of pharmacogenetics. And we'll see. We'll ask Hugh when you get him on here if I said that right. Pharmacogenetics a.k.a. the genetic testing of patients to ensure compatibility with prescription medications. And we're looking forward to talking more about what that really means, as well as the impact it has on patient care. Prior to ChromoCare, Hugh served as a principal for Columbus Partners LLC, and he was also the CRO at HealthSpot, Inc. 
He's got a wide range of leadership experience at several other companies and is also an experienced investor and board member at several firms. So excited to have Hugh on today to learn more about his journey and Crumble Care. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Hugh. Thank you very much, Mike. I'm yeah. glad to be here. Did I get it right? Did I pronounce it right? You did. Pharmacogenetics. Okay. So let's start there, maybe. You know, we've got a lot of things we could touch on. Uh, sure. And actually, you know what? Before we get into what pharmacogenetics is, let's let's take a step back. And can you just quick introduction to yourself and kind of your story, how you got to sure, where you Sure. You bet. Born and raised in the Southwest. Where in the Southwest? In Arizona. Arizona. Okay. So then, I grew up in San Diego, but spent time oh. in Yuma. Best city in the country, yep. San Diego. I love it. I get it. made fun of because I bring it up all the time on the podcast, but uh, I mean, how could you not? Uh, so. It's great. So uh, in my 20s, I moved to Southern California, lived in the Orange County area okay. and worked for AT&T. Yep. And that's really where I got my education was at AT&T. Back then, they had a process of educating their employees that they felt could be fast tracking to higher levels in the company. So I got a great education there and they, you know, taught all of the uh, financial modeling, mm -hmm. sales, operations. At one point they had me running uh, an operator center of 500 operators talking on the phone, uh, that kind of thing. But I came out here in 1996. Uh, I had left AT&T and gone through a couple of startup telecommunication businesses in Southern California. Get involved, I'd put some money in. Usually I'd come in as the leader, build them up, sell them, and repeat, wash, rinse, and repeat. In 96, I was recruited to come out to Columbus, Ohio. Had never even been in Ohio before. Had been around the world. Sounds familiar. Yeah, but never in Ohio. And I came out here and visited uh, for this position that I was being recruited for, and I absolutely fell in love with, uh, with Columbus. Of course, one of the guys, it was in June of 1990, actually it was June of 1995 that I made the first visit here. And a guy that was kind of showing me around said, yeah, the weather's like this most of the year. <laughs> he says, you know, we'll get a little uh, snow and rain, sure. but, you know, but mostly it's just great like this all the time. <laughs> that wasn't true. Yeah. And so I took the helm of a, of a company called NextLink. Uh, telecommunications company funded by a very high net worth uh, investor, uh, somebody that had served on the board at Microsoft, lived up in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And he had a vision for creating a different type of telecommunications company. And it was based on some federal regulatory changes that allowed more competition mm -hmm. in that industry. Prior to that, there wasn't a lot of competition. Right. So we started off the business with a billion dollars of paid in capital billion with a B, uh, and uh, the investor, Craig McCaw, wanted it uh, to go public within the first couple of years. Mm -hmm. I had done a small cap IPO for a, uh, a company in Southern California, and we did it on the Vancouver Stock Exchange. So I, I, I kind of knew what the whole process was about. So we started this company. Uh, we had the capital to grow. And you've been around startup companies, and, and naturally, capital is usually the thing that's in short supply. Yeah, that's the one that you need the most, too, right? <laughs> like short supply, but needed the most. Exactly, exactly. So uh, we built very fast because we had that much capital. As a matter of fact, I actually had to hire a consultant to work with me to think and understand how I started making things happen concurrently not in a linear fashion. So we were doing uh, construction, installing big fiber optic networks mm -hmm. around cities. And we needed to launch 26 cities, basically the NFL cities, uh, all at the same time. 
Well, Columbus was not an NFL city, of course, but, you know, we're close. Ohio State's basically the NFL. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so uh, we started building the company. Uh, It really took off. And within two years, we launched a Goldman Sachs underwritten IPO, raised about $700 million in equity, mm-hmm. uh, $400 million in public debt. And then the investor was able to start taking out some of his money. And we grew the company. And from 96 to late 99, we hit a $900 million annualized revenue run rate. So almost a billion year, a billion a year, in revenue and that's recurring revenue Mm -hmm. because people sign up for the services and and it recurs every month so uh you know we we did okay in the ipo not a bad way to invest a billion dollars yeah and so i started thinking about what i really want to do with my career and my wife said you know you travel all the time wouldn't it be nice if Maybe we just invested in companies here in central Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I said, that would be kind of nice. So I left the company at the end of 99. And as we all know, in 2000, there was a big uh, technology bubble Uh bursting uh, effect. And so the the people that succeeded me at NextLink sold the company to Carl Icahn, the investor. And uh, we were at about a billion dollar run rate. We sold the company to him for six billion. Um, I was already out by that point, mm-hmm. and I was going to start investing in local companies with a uh, a guy that came to Columbus and started the Angel Funding Network. Mm-hmm. A guy named John Houston, somebody that I had uh, immense respect for, and so we started looking at small companies to invest in. Uh, about that time. I was approached by a company called Quest Communications uh, that actually started in Columbus and then ultimately moved to Denver to take over as president. And it was uh, it was an opportunity I really couldn't pass up because we had another uh, secondary IPO offering mm-hmm. coming in that business. So I knew I needed to take that run. We did that for two years and did a secondary offering and, and that worked out okay. So then I decided I am strictly going to focus on early stage technology companies in Ohio. And so I've spent the, the last almost 20 years, well, about 20 years now, investing in companies. Uh, Chromacare is my ninth uh, early stage company. And uh, we've had some hits and had some misses. So there's a ton that we can unpack there. But I, I think what I want to focus on is is that that drive, the desire to invest in local companies and small tech companies. What what draws you to the small tech company, that stage of the business? Yeah, it's really math, mm-hmm. simple math. You come in a company that's doing a couple million a year in revenue. It's a lot easier to get them to 20 million than it is to get mm-hmm. a $100 million company to increase by tenfold. So, uh, so that, and so based on how you've invested your capital, the, the risk is higher because it's a smaller company, right. but the upside is much, much greater. I think it's something like uh, less than 1% of companies make it at the 10 million in ARR. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of risk, but if you're picking the right horses, right. Yeah. And, you're, and you know, you can have an impact then it makes a lot of sense. When you invest in a company like that, what are you looking for? The, the first thing I'm looking for is a coachable leadership team. I've done a lot uh, in business, and I don't mean to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but I know how business is supposed to grow and build. It's always dependent on the people, always. 
nobody has a technology that somebody else, you know, five guys and gals working in a garage in Des Moines, Iowa, mm-hmm. are also trying to do. So, so the technology doesn't, I mean, it's got to be solid, it's got to be sound, but, it, but I don't really chase technology. I chase teams that are very, very coachable. Mm-hmm. And if I find a team that's coachable, then that's about 50% of my concern going in. And then I have to look at the cap table and see who else is invested in it uh, and all that. And I have to know that the leadership is interested in some sort of liquidity event. No, that makes, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And then, so it's really the team that you're investing in. Yeah, and that the team... And as long as the product is a product that has a good total addressable market and right. all those other things, right? Like we're not going to invest in a basket weaving software. Exactly. But yeah. Exactly. But not only is the team important, but I want to see every single team member having equity in the business. Yep. So uh, the best story that I've ever had in business, the, the biggest success I've ever single point biggest success is my assistant at NextLink, which actually we changed the name to XO Communications mm-hmm. at one point. My assistant, you know, probably made 60, 65,000 a year. She was outstanding. And I had given her stock options in the company. We went public at $17 a share in September of 97. In about September of 99, the stock was $112 a share. And my assistant, Kathleen, came to me and she said, I'd like to sell my uh, stock. And I said, well, it's your stock. You don't have to ask me. And so I said, but go for it. I said, this is a pretty high price, so you'll do well. Sold her stock, paid cash for a new home Mm -hmm. or for a home in Clintonville, not a new home, but a a, a pre-existing home. Uh, Bought herself a new Toyota and paid cash and put the money in the bank to fund her daughter's uh, nope. school up through graduate school. That is a success mm-hmm. in building early stage companies. That's what really drives me. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think there's with early stage companies, right, there has to be that risk reward for the people that are working there because, hey, you know, when you go to an early stage company, there's a risk that you don't have a job right. next year. Right? right. There's always that risk. Sure. Uh, if you're not sitting on a billion dollars, I guess. Right. Uh, but, you know, and so it, it, it's definitely one of those, one of those things that finding the right way to reward the team and, and, reward the people that got you there is, is huge. It is. And, you know, I'm not a big believer in the ping pong tables and the catered mm-hmm. lunches and all that Silicon Valley stuff. What I'm a big believer in is equity mm-hmm. and giving employees the three or four things that they really, really want. Money is about the fourth or fifth level, but that you give them a challenge, you give them the tools to address the challenge, and you recognize them for achieving mm-hmm. those challenges. And, uh, you know, the old classic, you know, ringing a bell when a sale closes, all of that corny stuff actually mm-hmm. is really important. And I'm a big believer in it. Yeah. There's some really interesting tools out there. Cause I'm, uh, so I'm a sales leader Yeah, and we used to have a bunch of tools like everybody was remote now. Right? Yeah. Our entire team right. remote. Yeah. So there's no bell. Yeah. But <laughs> Phil, one of my, my director of sales development, he's got a cowbell. He'll ring it. Yeah. On, uh, on meetings, but also there's some tools out there that do some cool stuff. So for instance, there's, there's a tool and I can't remember the name of it, but it'll, yeah, everybody can download the app. And when someone closes the deal, it'll play their song uh-huh. across all the phones and like I love it. slide up. It's like, there's cool stuff like that, that I think really like it does build camaraderie and motivation. Yeah. But we're not here to talk sales and sales strategies. So let's, let's talk, talk a little about pharmacogenetics and chromacare. Sure. So you bet. First off, let's talk more about what that exactly is, right? All pharmacogenetics. Right. And, and how that works. The question I always ask when I'm speaking in front of a group uh, is how many of you in the audience 
or somebody you know, somebody in your family maybe, has been given a prescription for a medication and it either didn't work or it caused some sort of a side effect. Mm -hmm. And usually about 75 or 80% of the people raise their hands uh, when that question is asked. And the reason that happens is because people uh, metabolize medications differently. Each person does it differently mm -hmm. based on their genetic variants. Yep. So we all have you know the same set of genes, but some have different variants to mm -hmm. those genes. And those variants are what dictate how a medication metabolizes, which means how it affects your body. Is it going to cure that rash or is it going to cause you to have insomnia? Right. Those things can now be told mm -hmm. by analyzing the genetic code. And so somebody, uh, a patient comes to us, uh, we take a cheek swab, it's run through laboratory equipment, and we can produce a report from that that says that Mike, uh, if he takes clopidogrel for, for a depression situation, he will also have a real problem sleeping. Yep. And so guess what happens? The doctor prescribes Ambien mm -hmm. to combat that instead of changing the primary drug. Right. So what we are all about is making sure that the first drug that's being prescribed in a medical case is the right drug mm -hmm. so that we don't have to switch them back and forth all the time. So it saves on pharmacy costs. You know, you're not going back and filling uh, prescriptions. You're not going back to the doctor. So it saves on uh, office visits. And in the more severe cases of adverse side effects, mm -hmm. it can put them in the hospital. And this is very common. So it's so the whole idea behind it, and we sell what we do through employers. So we sell it to an employer, and that it becomes part of their health plan for their employees, mm -hmm. and the employer pays for it. What the p employer gets is because, by and large, the employers are paying for all of your healthcare needs for the most part. By and large, the employer is going to see a seven to eight to nine percent reduction in their total healthcare costs by employing product like ours. Yep. And that's after deducting the cost of doing the pharmacogenetic testing. So better patient outcomes, which is why mm -hmm. I'm in it. Yep. For the employers, frankly, the main thing they want to do is cut down on healthcare spend. Right. And I'd guess that you'd probably focus on medium to larger businesses in that's this correct. case, because in a smaller business, you're going to have more variance on that seven to 8%. Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. So you, you get it. Okay. And, and that's really interesting, right? I think that's an interesting angle to take. I mean, obviously, hey, if you're reducing costs 8 to 9%, should be a no-brainer, right? I'm curious about kind of what the objections you guys run into are and where, where people are like, hey, I don't understand this, or what? why wouldn't someone want to do yeah. this? Yeah, it's a fairly new technology. It's really come into the forefront over the last six or seven years. And so there's uh, concerns about that. Uh, early on, there were current concerns on the part of employees or patients about somebody having their DNA. Yep. Mean, what, are, what, are they, what are these people going to do with my DNA? Mm -hmm. Well, the, we leave our DNA everywhere. Yeah, so. <laughs> we really do. Right. And the genes that we test, there's only about 30 genes that we actually need to test for that. And none of those genes uh, say that so-and-so has a, a disease or mm -hmm. that they have characteristics in their genetic makeup that would lead them to do anything or be more susceptible to cancer or exactly like exactly okay and so and i'm curious when so when did you invest in the company and 
then the secondary question is, do you usually step in as CEO, CEO when you invest in a company? Yeah. So I first invested in Chromacare in 2016. Mm -hmm. uh, the founder of the company was a great guy, uh, very, very talented uh, individual. He's a marketing uh, guy mm -hmm. and he needed help uh, with the company. And so I said, well, I'll come in. I won't take any salary. Uh, but I need to be CEO so that I can raise additional capital and, mm -hmm. and grow the business. So that's, that's how that particular one happened. And he, and he was in full agreement yep. uh, with that. Most often, I will come in as either a board member, mm -hmm. CEO, chief revenue officer, something where I can impact the work that's being done that protects the investment that I've made in the company. It's, it's a pretty simple, you know, formula for me. No, I mean, it makes, makes a lot of sense. And, and when you look at Chromacare, right. And, and that, that particular business, right. What are the biggest challenges to that go-to market when it comes to, you know, number one, selling to the employers, number two, like raising that money. Was there, was there a, was it an easy funding raise? Was it easy to go out and find people to invest or was it challenging to get people to buy into such a new um, product? I would say that it was uh, probably more on the challenging side. I have a huge network in central Ohio, and many of my associates invested in the company uh, early stage, early on. Uh, but then as we started to grow and I needed to raise greater amounts, then you need to go sometimes outside of central Ohio. And so you go to the right coast or the left coast because that's mm -hmm. really where the money is. And, and there were more challenges uh, out there. And a lot of it was because of the relative newness of this technology. And probably the bit, one of the biggest challenges we have, and since you're in sales, you'll appreciate this. I didn't want to hire a direct sales force. Um, I've done that in a number of companies. And man, you've probably got a 50-50 chance at best mm -hmm. of getting all the right people in and marching in the right direction. So we started investigating indirect distribution channels. So what we focused on were benefit, health benefit, mm -hmm. insurance brokers, the folks that sell the main piece. Having them work it into precisely their have them, packages as well. Have them. And, and that worked. Uh, that was successful. The issue is what we do is, is very scientific, mm -hmm. as you can imagine. And I think I know where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to get people to not. Mm -hmm. Say, well, this is a magic formula. It's not a magic formula. Right. It's just one more tool in providing better health outcomes. Yep. And so that's that was a lot of the challenge. That's always been my biggest fear when it comes to channel sales and having other people sell our product is what message is going to get out there exactly that I don't want getting out there, exactly. right? How are you going to sell this? You're gonna you're gonna describe it as this software can do anything for you? Yeah. Or are you going to tell them exactly what it's supposed to do, right? Exactly. Uh, exactly. When you can't control the messaging, it's very yeah. nerve-wracking as, yeah. as a sales leader. And it doesn't matter what industry, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, the pharmacy world, if it's, you know, no, it just doesn't matter. If somebody is not kind of invested in the mm -hmm. mission of increasing health mm -hmm. outcomes, chances are they're not going to be very successful. But the flip side was I only paid them on success. Mm -hmm. So... You know, the only way they got paid was by, you know, yep. and then eventually we evolved it to where they would open the door and then one of my senior team would go in and actually talk to the potential client mm -hmm. about what the technology is. is and how it'll benefit them. Exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So basically using uh, our channel sales partners more as sales development partners or business development partners. Pre precisely. Okay. 
Very interesting. And and so now that you kind of have that going and things are kind of afoot, kind of where where is the future heading? What's the goals with with that business? Well, ultimately, it's going to be to sell the company. Uh, as, at, yeah. at, when you invest, uh, you know, there's got to be an exit at some point. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think where we go next is uh, some pretty interesting areas of development in this pharmacology mm-hmm. area. One of the things that we can potentially do with our genetic test is to predict mm-hmm. an individual's susceptibility to drug addiction. So when an individual becomes addicted to uh, drugs, whether they're prescription drugs or street drugs or whatever, the reason that happens to about 60% is how their body metabolizes it. So in the example of, let's take street drugs, if somebody is a slow metabolizer, mm-hmm. metabolizer, then they need more of a drug into their system to get the effect. Well, obviously, the desired effect of street drugs is is not curative. It's it's not. And so people end up taking more of the drug, and then the physical properties of the drug create the physical dependency mm-hmm. of the individual. But as it relates to medic, prescription medication abuse, we are working on a model that would allow us to have employers and by the way, all of the information that we gain on the individuals mm-hmm. uh, is not shared right. with the employer. It's all HIPAA-protected mm-hmm. uh, information. Only the, the patient and their doctor can see that information. But a person could be taking that test, and it could say, this person has a susceptibility to Valium, let's say. Mm-hmm. So if they're going to a doctor in their records, it can be said, you know, uh, avoid prescribing Valium, yep. prescribe something else. So that, I think, is a really exciting component of this. Mm-hmm. As further research is done and we're able to determine that we can accurately and reliably and repeatedly predict that susceptibility, then I think that could be a huge, huge tool for the Medicaid population because that's where, sadly, that's where a right. lot of prescription medications start. And as we know, there's also some geographic differences mm-hmm. that uh, where we see higher incidence of prescription medication uh, uh, abuse. Uh, you know, the uh, the OxyContin is, mm-hmm. is the big one. Uh, there was a great movie uh, out not too long ago starring Michael Keaton, and it showed just how easily somebody could become addicted to OxyContin when they were taking it for true physical pain. Mm-hmm. Oxycontin is a valuable painkiller, yep. but boy, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, so. absolutely. And the whole opioids pandemic, right? And, and those types of things, right? Those are big problems that we got to solve. Big so problems, yeah. Makes a ton of sense. You know, I guess I'm curious because there's a whole there's a whole bunch of different angles I could go, right? And I think, you know, I, I've enjoyed the conversation about Chromacare, but I, I'm also wondering kind of what's the what's the end goal for you, you know, in, in terms of investing and building this up? Like, what are you, what are you hoping to do? Because frankly, I Based on what we've talked about so far, I can't imagine that you're hurting for money. So I'm trying to figure out, like, what are you hoping to accomplish with all this investing? I want to basically, for me, a perfect life would be, you know, spending plenty of time with my family. But I want to die working, basically. I, uh, my dad died at 89 and -hmm. he was still running his own business in Southern California or uh, I'm sorry, in Phoenix uh, at that time. And, you know, I, I kind of am the sort that I never met a business I didn't like. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I just geek out on new technologies. Uh, my wife is in the business world, too. I mean, our conversations are 
half, you know, family stuff and and all that. And the other half is look at look at who's buying who in the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the market out there. And so, you know, have no desires for, you know, a jet or private island or anything like that. Um, I want to be comfortable. I want my kids to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I want to hang out with the people that I like the best, which are the people that I typically co-invest with yep. and um, and then the, the leaders of these companies. Uh, I'm actually a pretty simple guy uh, in that regard. Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is uh, really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies. Companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So, again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. So, moving to more some questions related to, because obviously you've seen a lot of smaller tech companies, startups, and, and the like. So I'm curious, kind of, what are the biggest uh, misconceptions you see in leadership teams in early stage companies? Or what are the biggest kind of, if maybe misconceptions isn't the right word, what are the biggest things that are holding them back that they, they don't realize? So when you're looking at companies that are more science-based, you're typically going to have a leader who is, you know, a scientist, an engineer, something mm-hmm. like that. The biggest challenge for them is to understand sales and marketing. And too often, people with highly technical backgrounds tend to think of that as a necessary evil. And I don't look at it that way. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, every company has to be a sales company. And that means that everybody needs to be uh, recognized as being in the chain of sales. You're either talking to customers that write checks for what we do or you are working for somebody in our company who does spend their time getting customers to write checks for what we do. Yep. Doesn't mean that I want the uh, the technical people to be, you know, sucked into sales mm-hmm. processes or anything. I just need an appreciation for that. And consequently, I need for salespeople to have a realistic understanding of how challenging it is to deliver whatever the product is mm-hmm. because none of that is, is is easy. So you know, getting those people all on the same wavelength is mm-hmm. incumbent upon the leader. So they really have to be people focused. They really have to have an appreciation for people and their efforts. I'd like to say that they have to like people, but if they can't, then at least that they have an appreciation for the fact that you've got a group of folks mm-hmm. out here who are sacrificing time mm-hmm. that could be spent with their families or you know whatever else doing this mission. Now that those words just came out of my mouth, I guess mission focus is really, I mean, it sounds kind of corny to say it, but that becomes a real, mm-hmm. uh, a real important thing. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I was just having this conversation today with someone on our team and I was explaining, hey, listen, right? Sales matters. Yes. And it's not because we're greedy. Yeah. And it's not because we want to make a bunch of money. It's because if I don't, if we don't sell, we can't pay our dev people. We can't reinvest in the product. We can't keep making the product better for our customers and 
for people out there who need this problem solved. Right. So sales allows you not only to everybody to get paid, right? That's important. We all want to get paid, but also sales enables us to do the things that are going to make our product better and have a bigger impact on future clients and our current clients, right? And if you stop selling, you can't make the product better for the people you have. You're exactly right. And you hit on a really important point, Mike, and that is reinvesting. Part of the problem with this, you know, early liquidity event psychology that that permeates, mm-hmm. particularly the technology world. And so I can't really speak to retail or, you know, whatever else because I'm not in that space. But, you know, people get excited. You see young entrepreneurs, you know, excited about the potential for an exit. And yeah, that's cool. But but what about mm-hmm. taking that widget and reinvesting and making it times three, times five, times 10 in terms of capability. That's exciting stuff. Mm -hmm. That's really exciting stuff. And I just don't see where you're going to get a better return in the current market if you're having that momentum, right? Exactly. Like why not let it ride? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, but I'm a sales guy, obviously. So I I am a little more aggressive and and biased when it comes to this type of thing. Sure, sure. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to bet on us. (laughs) Of course, Yeah, we're going to do great. Uh, But it's, uh, no, I mean, absolutely true, right? And I think that one of the things you see that first, like, what I see a lot with uh, with the tech startup world and and entrepreneurs, especially first time entrepreneurs, they see that first big valuation number, right? Yeah. Whatever that is for fifty yeah. million, hundred million, whatever. It's like, oh my gosh, I got to take it off the table. <laughs> like I got it. I'm I'm here. I hit the I hit the jackpot. Like yeah. And and they don't think about. Well, wait a minute. We're growing 40 percent at least, yeah. maybe seventy percent, eighty percent year over year, and don't see that slowing down. So this is just going to keep going up. Like why should I pull that money out? And I get taken a little bit off the table, right? Sure, absolutely. You know, hey, that, that's just let's, that's let's hit save, yeah. right? Hit save, yeah. And but but I think that yeah, you got to let it ride. And, and I think the people that really find success continue to bet on themselves and their teams. You know, salespeople are an interesting group mm-hmm. of people. We tend to be emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to kind of wear our hearts on the sleeve and, and all that. And one of the things that I've learned back in my early days at AT AT&T where we went through very exhaustive sales training is that nobody ever gets criticized into doing anything. Yep. And um, so my approach to sales is just the opposite. You you know, if I feel that somebody is, you know, making the effort and Mm -hmm. just needs the right opportunity, then what can I do as a leader to make sure that they're getting in front of the right opportunity so that they can close business. Yep. Because nothing feels as good as closing a great deal. That's right. It's just the best. That's right. You got to be addicted to that if you want to be a salesperson. You, but you do. You know, so it's funny because I, again, I could talk about sales all day. Yeah. I was just talking. Have you ever seen Ted Lasso? Oh, of course. Okay. So I've been preaching a lot of Ted Lasso to the team. Absolutely. And the phrase, be curious, not judgmental, that Walt Whitman quote. I think that's perfect for sales. It is. Right. A lot of times we want to tell our prospects, oh, man, that guy just didn't care about the stuff, right? They say he didn't get it, right? No, he didn't. It's not that he didn't get it. You should have asked him why this wasn't important to him. Yeah. Right? Like, don't judge. Be curious. Ask him a question. Hey, it seems like this isn't the top of your list, man. Like, what else is on your list that's really got you going? Because apparently what I'm selling ain't it. But I want to know what happened. Like, what's going on? And guess what? You're going to learn more about that individual by them answering that question. You know, if, if you think about it as building relationships instead of closing sales, mm-hmm. um, I mean, closing sales naturally has to right. be... That quote is sitting over your head, it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, exactly. But building relationships with people, I, um, I'm i telling you, the, the ability to start off a customer relationship and build it into a relationship, uh, you know, kind of a personal relationship of sorts, I think is really, really important. I think mm-hmm. that's what the best, the very best 
yep. salespeople do. 100%. Well, Hugh, I think it's a good place to kind of pivot towards some last questions of the show here. I got a couple left for you and then we'll sure. get you out of here. But uh, first one is uh, you have any advice for our listeners out there? A lot of them are entrepreneurs or thinking about being entrepreneurs or people that are just interested in business in Columbus. Yeah. Yes, I do. Um, first of all, find uh, what I say is I find find a rabbi, find somebody <laughs> that, that you can talk to that mm-hmm. cares about you and is willing to spend their time visiting with you. I've got, Mike, I've probably got a dozen younger salespeople mm-hmm. that I spend time with simply because I had people do that for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's the thing that you got to pay forward is, uh, and I think that's, you know, really, mm-hmm. r- really important. I think that keeping a proper balance in what you're doing is really important. And I feel like younger generations are probably more in tune mm-hmm. to keeping that balance uh, maintained. And I'm, and I'm glad to see that. I mean, you know, you've seen it, I've seen it. The people that, that work, you know, 10, 12 hours a day and mm-hmm. just grind away. And, and I've done that and you've probably done that. And those were not the fun times uh, of my career. I guess I felt I did it to pay the dues, but I don't want to put that on uh, other people. Mm-hmm. You know, I want people to love what they're doing, but it's only part of you know the the yep. big the big picture. And uh, so get somebody to be coaching you, and uh, and listen to them. And the other thing is to really focus at once you're in the business with these first time entrepreneurs. Make sure that you understand what your customers are asking for and make sure that your board of directors, one of the, one of the least properly used assets in business is your board of directors. Mm -hmm. And if you've built the right board of directors, uh, you know, and a board is not to bring you in once a month and chastise you. I've always approached boards as I give assignments to board members. Board member says, well, I wonder what would happen if we invested 200 million in this, you know, how fast could we grow it? And my response is, great, why don't you go ahead and run the numbers You on tell that? me. <laughs> yeah, because I've got a full-time job. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love so. it. And so last question of the show, Hugh, centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. And not telling you too much about why we chose that phrase for a show about entrepreneurs, business owners, leaders around the city. What do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Well, um, it actually kind of reminds me of something. When I was a, a kid, in my family, you started working at about age 10. You got mm-hmm. a paper route and you know, and you were probably the same. And one day uh, there was an old song by Crosby, Stills, and Nash called, If You Can't Be With The One You Love, Love The One You're With. We're driving down the street and my dad was not a rock aficionado, but he let me listen to it. And he listened to those lyrics one day and he turned, reached over and turned the radio down. He says, that's a good thing for you to think about in your work. And I said, I don't quite get it. And he said, if you can't have the job that you absolutely love, learn to love the job you've got. And I'm telling you, I took that to heart and I have scrubbed pots in restaurants and I have just done all kinds of menial stuff. And I had to figure out a way to love what I was doing. And I have to tell you that my wife would testify to this. I've loved everything. I've loved every boss I've ever had. Yeah. I've never had a bad boss. And my wife says, well, that's mostly because of your attitude. Mm -hmm. Well, whatever. But, you know, loving the work and loving the people I work with. It's been great. I think there's a lot of truth to that. As long as your boss isn't like verbally abusive, right? You know, there's there's limits, obviously. But but when it comes to attitude, right? 
I've never met many people that spend a lot of time complaining. Yeah. That are happy with their jobs. Exactly. Right? And the people who are happy with their jobs never complain. Yeah. Right. And and it's not that they don't have problems. Right. Right. You know, everybody's got problems in their job and people people struggle, right? Yeah. Job sometimes do I love my job all the time? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. right? That'd be a lie to say I love my job all the time, every day. It's always fun, perfect, great. But consistently over the long run, you put in the work, you yeah. enjoy it, you find the things yeah. that you love, and then you delegate the stuff you don't. Well, you mentioned the uh, the uh, uncomfortable, the word uncomfortable, and a lot of that's training. Uh, whether it's conversations mm-hmm. that you don't want to have or work that you don't want to do, one of the ways that we build ourselves up and increase our mm-hmm. uh, capabilities and so forth is to learn to be very comfortable in the uncomfortable. Yep. Um, I've had to let people go. I've had to, uh, in one instance, I had to let go my dearest friend for many, many years. And um, my wife said, I, I don't know how you could tell Gary mm-hmm. that. And I said, well, because I love Gary. And, you know, this is separate from my affection for him as a mm-hmm. friend. You've got to learn to have the uncomfortable conversations and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. 100%. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great talking with you today. Well, I've enjoyed it very much, and I appreciate it. Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks so much for uh, tuning in. That was Hugh Cathy from Chromacare, and if you want to learn more about Chromacare, you can go to www.chromacare.com. Fantastic, and uh, if you enjoyed that episode, and want to hear more interviews just like it with folks from around Columbus, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. Uh, We release every Monday, so thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.